You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So the Heidelberg Catechism was written by Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olevianus in 1563. Just curious, anyone ever heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? Raise your hand. All right, we've actually quoted it here before, so joke's on you. All of you have heard the Heidelberg Catechism. <laughs> All right, so this is the, uh, in terms of history, this is the, the second generation of Protestant reformers. So these guys would have been uh, discipled by the people that you've heard of, like Calvin, Luther, Zwingli. This would be that next generation. They're, they're passing the baton. The torch is being passed. And they were really the ones tasked with the job of nurturing and maturing the Reformation. So if the original reformers were the, the spark that got it all started, these guys were, were the ones kind of uh, to stoke that fan into flame so that it would uh, continue on. And for that to happen, the truths of the Reformation needed not only to be written down, but captured in a way that could be learned by everyone. In other words, it's not, it's not enough for it just to be uh, in the, uh, the, the, the academy and the, in the universities. Eventually, these truths need to get distilled down into the, to the everyday language where everyday people were learning the truths of the Reformation. And so uh, the Protestants began to write down catechisms to serve the church. These are, uh, these are essentially helpful ways, question and answers, uh, a little, like little bit by little bit to be able to grow in the truths of the gospel. That's why we do the New City Catechism uh, with our children. It's why uh, we are often putting these, these good resources in front of you so that we can uh, uh, know what it is that we actually believe so that it would inform uh, not only our minds, but it would shape our hearts and uh, help us learn how to live. Now, uh, Zacharias Ursinus was known for his careful theological precision. He was like a who's who uh, of up-and-coming theologians. In today's parlance, we would say he was an influencer. Uh, he was an up-and-coming guy. Um, Olevianus was known for his ability uh, to preach and communicate God's word so that it engaged the heart and mind. So you've got this, this great theologian and this great preacher. And the idea was these two guys will be able to put together a really good and helpful um, catechism. And they did. They produced one of the more enduring and beautiful catechisms to come out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, one of the things I love about the Heidelberg Catechism is that its structure is loosely based on the Book of Romans. So if you read through the Catechism and you read through the Book of Romans, they're structured in a very similar way. And it has three major movements, and it goes guilt, grace, gratitude. That's really like you could sum up the whole gospel that way. We have guilt, God is gracious, now we live gra uh, grateful lives. Um, it's further divided into 52 sections. Now that number 52 is not arbitrary. Why? Well, there's 52 weeks in a year. So the idea is uh, week by week you take one of these questions and answers and you memorize it and you learn it and you uh, read the scriptures that go along with it. And then in a year you've worked your way through the whole catechism. The preface to the catechism uh, comes to us in question one and it goes like this. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and death. First question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of my eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. See that theological precision met with pastoral 
uh, uh, unction there. The first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is the gospel in a nutshell. If you were looking for a, a helpful definition of what is the gospel, this is a great one. In many ways, it's a distillation of Romans chapter 8. You hear little bits and pieces of Romans 8 in there. And this first question sets the tone for the whole catechism. And did you notice, as they began this catechism, it began with assurance. That we can be assured of our salvation. In a world where death is certain and life is often hard and uncertain... The question asks, what comfort then can we have in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Ursinus once said that he would not trade a thousand worlds in exchange for the blessed assurance of being owned by Jesus Christ. The other author, author Olivianus, in the final moments... He's on his deathbed, and a friend asked him if he was certain of his salvation. And with confidence, he said, certissimus, which is Latin for most certain. In the final moments before death, when you might expect fear to overwhelm, he said, I am most certain because I belong to Jesus Christ. See, we can have comfort in this life and in our death. We can have assurance of salvation because we belong to Jesus. This morning as we come to Romans chapter 8 and verses 14 through 16, we really can know for sure that God loves us and that we belong to him. And as we unpack these verses, he's going to give us three reasons why we can have a confident assurance. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline today. First, God's children are led by God's Spirit. It's one of the first assurances that God's children are led by God's Spirit. See, God doesn't save us and leave us alone to figure out life on our own. But God puts His Spirit in us and leads His children by that Spirit as we put sin to death and pursue Christ-likeness. Second, God's love goes beyond forgiveness to adoption. God's love goes beyond forgiveness to adoption. Because God is merciful, he extends forgiveness all the way to adoption. It doesn't, he doesn't just terminate uh, his forgiveness in the transaction of a canceled debt, but his love continues on. It goes further. It goes beyond uh, forgiveness all the way to adoption. And third, God continuously reminds us that we are his children. God continuously reminds us that we are his children. See, God made us. He knows that we are weak. He knows that our frame is made of dust. And he knows that we are prone to questioning and doubting and wondering, does God really love me? Do I really have a place in God's family? And so God continuously reminds us that we are his children. One of the uh, predominant ministries of the Spirit is simply to say, you are God's child. You are God's child. You are God's child. Three reasons we can have confident assurance. So let's start with our first reason, that God's children are led by God's Spirit. And we see that in verse 14. Let's read it again together. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now another way you could say the exact same thing is this. God's children are led by God's Spirit. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It's a common question people ask, like how does the Spirit lead us in life? And often we're thinking about that in terms of the, the, like the, the big decisions in life. Like what career should I have? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? Where should I live? Right? These kind of big uh, monumental questions in life. And I think if you'll notice in this passage, that's not really what Paul is talking about when it comes to being led by the Spirit. And it's not that God doesn't lead us in those things, but it's, it's a lot more than that. God doesn't just want to lead you in the biggest decisions of your life. He wants to lead you in the everyday decisions of your life. And it's an important question because, like I said earlier, it's one of the reasons we can have confidence and be assured of our salvation is that God leads his children. 
That word for, F-O-R, the beginning of the verse, is an explanatory word. In other words, it, it gives further explanation to verse 13. They're connected. And we stopped there last week, so I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verse 13 as we go into 14 so we can see it all together. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then here's verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So being led by the Spirit, Paul says, is, is, is connected to putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. You see that? Being led by the Spirit and, and then this, this work of putting the deeds to, of, of the flesh to death by the Spirit. Those are connected together. So if you remember last week, we, we spent time unpacking this idea of the mortification of sin or killing sin. We talked about how our motive for doing that is that we are debtors to grace. That because of God's grace, what is true of Christ is now true of you. So what that means is you're no longer marked and defined by life in the flesh you're no longer marked by Adam's rebellion. We're born into this world under the, the headship and the category of being sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so we're marked by his disobedience and, and guilt. And that guilt has forever changed and shaped us. But now we are marked by life in the spirit and by Christ's obedience. Paul unpacks all of this in Romans 5. That we can have a new head, a, a new leader, a new representative in Jesus Christ. We've been set free from sin and death. We've been reconciled to God. And now Paul says the spirit of the living God has regenerated us. That word just means to be made alive again, to be born again. We are regenerated, that God has replaced our cold heart of stone and replaced it with a warm, beating heart that is now, for the very first time in your life, alive to the things of God. And so now we have a new trajectory and a super bright future. And so Paul says, because of all those things, you're a debtor to that grace. You're to, you're, to, you're to go, man, God has done so much for me. And now I want to live my life in a motive of gratitude. That grace motivates us to live out our new identity as God's children. And so we talked about putting to, de to death the deeds of the body as the Spirit leads. So what Paul is saying is that not only does the process of sanctification, this, this where we actually start to become righteous, not only does that come in the power of the Holy Spirit, but now Paul adds another clarification in verse 14 that the process itself is led by the Spirit. In other words, God leads us along the path of sanctification step by step. That's why one of the predominant metaphors of the Christian life is, is walking with the Spirit. It's a step-by-step, day-by-day process. So we are God's children, and He does not leave us, forsake us, or abandon us to try to figure out life by ourselves. Pastor Ray Ortland writes this, The Christian experience is not a static state, meaning stuff doesn't change, but an ongoing pilgrimage. As the Spirit leads us to put to death specific sins here and there in our personalities and finances and schedules and relationship and goals and so forth. God knows better than we do where we need to move forward into deeper life by dying to ourselves. So he, the Spirit, puts his finger on this and then on that, giving us the courage to keep moving forward one step at a time. This week I was thinking back to when I first became a Christian. Became a Christian when I was 15 years old. And an older brother in the faith named Matt um, started to disciple me. So he was the first person to open up a Bible and say, here's how you read God's word. And here's, here's, here's some verses you should memorize to, to store in your heart. And here, here's how you live out the Christian life. Because I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't have someone to lead me. And so Matt was this older brother in the faith. And he said, I'm going to walk alongside of you. And as in my early walk, I started to read the Bible. And I started to see very quickly that my life was filled with all sorts of sin. There was a lot of anger in there, a lot of pride, selfishness, envy, this drive to make a name for myself. And I remember meeting with Matt and I felt very overwhelmed. And I said, Matt, there's so much sin in my life. How, 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 do, I, how do I start? Where do I go? And he uh, gave me one of the most helpful things. He said, 
brother, this is a a spirit-led endeavor. The spirit will lead you in your walk with Christ. He said you can only focus on one thing at a time. It's impossible to take all of the things in your life at one moment and, and, and to do so with any kind of success. You really need to hone in and focus on where the spirit is leading you. So let the spirit decide where to focus. And so he encouraged me, spend time praying. Look, spirit, where do you want to begin? Where can we get started on putting the deeds of the body to death? Friends, our transformed life happens one day at a time, one step at a time. And it's important for you to remember this, that your status as a child of God is not in limbo. You're not in, uh, it's not waiting until you reach a certain threshold of sanctification, and I think a lot of times we think it does. So God has saved us, but he, like, he's almost kind of going, um, let's see how you do. And if you meet a certain level of holiness, then I will become your father. Then you can be my child. And that's not the case. The moment we are declared righteous, we are adopted into God's family. You don't have to prove and you don't have to earn your place as God's children. We are saved and given that status the moment we believe. It's an instantaneous thing. You don't work your way into God's family. All of salvation is, a, is by faith, or I mean, is by grace through faith. It's a gift, it's given to us. And so it's from that place of sonship, it's from that place of daughtership that we work out our salvation as. The Spirit leads. And though the emphasis in this passage is on mortification, remember that it's, uh, there, there are two parts to it. There's both mortification, putting to death our sin, and then there's vivification, which means bringing things to life, cultivation, killing and cultivating, uprooting and planting. And the Spirit will lead you in that process to name sins in your life, to put them to death, and to encourage you to pursue Christ-likeness. You see this very clearly in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down, Colossians 3, 1 to 17, because there's going to be homework later. Now, Paul talks about in this passage this language of putting things off and then putting things on. Putting things to death and bringing things to life. So in in chapter 3, verse 5 to 9, he says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And so he's going to list out some things. Okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, these are sins and God is judging them. And he's right to do so. In these two, you once walked. When you were living in them. But now, because there's been a change, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, it's important. These lists are never exhaustive. He's not listing every single sin imaginable. However... It's a pretty good list, you know, if we're looking for a list of things to put to death. It could keep you busy for a lifetime. Sexual immorality and impurity, that's covering lustful thoughts, pornography, premarital sex, fornication, sexual perversion and deviancy of any kind. Anything that is outside of God's design for human sexuality between one man, one woman for one lifetime. And Paul would have us consider our passions and our desires. It would have us consider the the things that drive us to our sins, the sin beneath the sin, the motivations and drives of the heart that lead us to do the things that we do. Talks about coveting, which is a discontentment with what you have combined with an entitlement fueled by comparing yourself with others. That's basically what social media is, right? You're, you're constantly looking around at other people and it starts to, to fuel in you a desire to go, ooh, I like what they have. I don't have that. I should have that. Why don't I have that? Who are they to have that, right? 
I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm saying it definitely fuels. It gives us more opportunities to look around us to be coveting. And Paul says, yeah, put that to death. Put it to death. He says, get rid of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. He says, stop lying. He says, wage war on these things. Put them to death. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, if you're putting those to death in their place, what do we do? Put on then, as God chosen one, holy and beloved. Notice he doesn't wait to call us beloved until we've put these on. He says, well, this is who you are. You're, you're already holy and righteous because I've declared you righteous. You have the righteousness of Christ. Because of that, I've adopted you. So you're beloved, you're accepted, loved. So from that place, do this. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Oh, and by the way, at the end he goes, and be thankful. I like that. Do you see the vivification here? These are the things you're supposed to bring to life in your life. Do you see cultivation? You're taking all these things out, and now you've got to plant new things. Do you see the pursuit of Christ-likeness? That paragraph described Christ, and he's saying, live like him. So instead of malice and anger, if you're getting rid of those things, what do you do in its place? Cultivate a heart of compassion and kindness. Instead of pride that fuels coveting and idolatry, he says cultivate humility and meekness. Those are the antidotes to coveting and pride. Instead of slander and lies, what does he say? Be patient and bear with one another. Instead of bitterness, pursue forgiveness and love. Instead of entitlement, learn gratitude. This is, friends, the work of sanctification. And this is what the Spirit leads in God's children. Now you might be asking, how is that an assurance of salvation? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, you need to remember that for the Christian, every day you wake up, there is a choice set before you to choose life or choose death. To choose goodness or choose evil. See, if you are, uh, before you were a Christian, before you were a Christian, you had no choice. You were dead in the trespasses of your sin. You were unwilling and unable to choose life and to please God. It doesn't mean that you never did something um, with this low-grade kind of morality. But before Christ, your heart was held captive by sin. You could not and were unwilling to please God. But now, as a Christian, you have a new choice given to you. In Christ, you have a choice. Will you return to your old slavish ways? In other words, will you, will you choose to live like you're not a Christian? Or will you take action to mortify sin and pursue Christ's likeness and live in step with the Spirit? So every day when you wake up, there's a question. There's a question mark on your day. Will you live life according to the flesh? Or will you live life according to the spirit? Another way to say it is, will you today live like a son or daughter of God? Or will you live like a child of disobedience? That choice is set before you. In other words, every day is an invitation to walk with the spirit. Or, it's a, or, or you have an opportunity to reject the spirit and to walk down the foolish deadly path of sin let's just be honest for a moment in the moment sin doesn't feel like death i know we've talked about how sin is death and it leads to it and if your experience is anything like mine sometimes sin doesn't feel like death sometimes it's like this feels like life this feels good i like this right i hope i'm not the only one right okay Sometimes pursuing sinful desires can be immensely gratifying in the moment. And in the moment, it will not feel like death. It will feel like life. And you will be tempted to go, well, because it feels good, it must be good. That's like the gospel of our day, isn't it? If it feels good, it must be good. But if you're a child of God, you know both theologically 
and experientially that that good feeling is temporary and fleeting, isn't it? It doesn't last. It gives way to guilt and shame. The high of sin always gives way to a crash. Sin always overpromises and always under delivers. And if you pursue sin long enough, you will find it devastates and destroys. It's what sin does. It's its nature. And it cannot, will not, and in fact, cannot change. It will continue to do what sin does. It will devastate and destroy. It will wreck and ruin your life. And it will, given enough time, lead to death, both in this life and eternal death in the life to come. The threat of indulging and giving in to sin and being passive in the fight against it results in dire consequences. And we saw that last week when Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's why we said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Pursue Christ or Paul says you will die. It matters how we live, friends. It's not irrelevant. We are not to presume upon God's grace or take it for granted because that kind of mentality, the kind that says, you know, I've got this get out of hell free card that God will forgive me so I can just go ahead and do it. That kind of mentality is contradictory for someone who has experienced the lavish grace of God. That kind of flippancy towards sin, that presumption of grace doesn't understand what sin is and does not appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he has made on our behalf. And Paul is saying, if that's how you think, then maybe you have not encountered true salvation. And we are supposed to really wrestle with that. That is meant to, to stir us up a little bit and to go, do I really believe? Do I really understand the weight of my sin and the grace of God? Now, again, it's not that a genuine Christian will not stumble in sin. That's not what I'm saying. Christians will sin. But rather, when they do, they regret it, they repent of it, and they desire to change. And there's this trajectory over the course of their life where they don't fall into the same sin patterns over and over and over and over and over again. Year over year, decade over decade, there should be trajectory in your life. And so friends, if you have a low degree of assurance, meaning you don't feel assured, is that because there is a high degree of disobedience? And if that's the case, that is, the Bible is saying that's what's supposed to happen. Low degrees of assurance will go hand in hand with low degrees of Christian obedience. In other words, you should not expect to feel assured of salvation as a child of God if you are actively pursuing sin. If you are actively looking for ways to sin with no regard for God at all, you should not also expect to have high degrees of assurance. However, if you are moving away from sin and there is a real desire in you to put to death the deeds of the body and there is a real desire in you to cultivate the life of Christ in your life, then friends, that is evidence of the Spirit's leading and confirmation of your status as a child of God because no one does that without the Spirit's leading. So if you were to look at your life and go, there is a real, genuine pursuit of Christ. I really do uh, hate sin and I want to put it to death and you are pursuing that, then you should be assured because that is the Spirit of God leading you as a child. I mentioned homework this week. Read Colossians 3, 1 to 17. It's got a list of sin and a list of things to cultivate in your life. Work through it, and, and this is how you do it. As you're reading through it, you're going to begin with a prayer and say, Spirit, help me understand what these words mean, and point out to me the one or two things you want me to put to death in my life. And Spirit, help me point out the one or two things you want me to cultivate in my life. Let the Spirit speak wherever he leads you, that's where you're supposed to start working. This is a spirit-led endeavor. 
It doesn't get more practical in terms of application. This is something you can go do this week. Take you 15, 20 minutes to work through this text, spend some time in prayer, and let the Spirit lead you. He will draw to mind the things in your life that he wants to be put to death. How can you be assured of salvation? God's children are led by God's Spirit. If you see the Spirit of God leading you to pursue Christ's likeness, to put sin to death, you can be assured that you are a child of God. Now let's look at verse 15 to see a second assurance that God's love goes beyond forgiveness to adoption. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now in this verse, Paul is setting up a contrast, a spirit of slavery or a spirit of adoption. And Paul is saying, Christian, if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave. You used to be slaves to sin that led to guilt and shame and fear. Our obedience to Christ being led by the Spirit should never be viewed as slavery. Rather, Paul says, we should be grateful. We are debtors to grace because we see that his love for us goes beyond forgiveness all the way to adoption. If you're in Christ, he has given you this spirit of adoption. Now, earlier in Romans 8, Paul said that all those who believe belong to God. And in the last verse, he said those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. But all the while, Paul has not really told us how it is that we become sons and daughters of God. And now Paul gives us this language of adoption. That is how we become sons and daughters of God. Now, this is important. See, there is, in one sense, a kind of belonging that happens because we are creatures and God is our creator. He made us and therefore we belong to him. But that is not what he's talking about here. We belong to God because he has adopted us. He specifically uses adoption language. Now, if you've been tracking and reading through Romans and and, and following Paul's argument, you know that we're not born into this world as members of God's family. In fact, the language he uses for us is strangers, and uh, we are alienated from the promises of God. In fact, we're not even acquaintances with him. The word Paul calls us is enemies. We are enemies of God. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this life. Before the reconciling work of God, you were an enemy. You were an enemy of God. That's why he had to reconcile you, because you were an enemy. And we're reconciled to him by the death of his son. Now, if that were the end of the story, it would still be an incredible story of grace. The fact that God would extend mercy and forgiveness to wicked, bad sinners, enemies of God, that is an incredible story of grace. But he doesn't merely extend forgiveness. No, he lavishes grace upon grace. So there's the grace of being forgiven, and then on top of that, there's another grace of being adopted. How do strangers And enemies become children of God? Well, God's mercy forgives us and his love adopts us. We read it earlier today in our assurance of salvation, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that what? We might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Now, I want you to think about adoption for a minute. Adoption, by its definition, is to be brought into something that you do not possess by nature. Right? Biological sons and daughters uh, have their sonship and daughtership by nature. Right? It's, it's, it's It's a matter of biology. Right? A child of two parents is a legitimate son or daughter by, by what, they, what they have by nature. They have a, 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 you know, a, a, the biology of their mom and dad. Adopted children possess their status as legitimate children by grace through love. See, God's redemption goes beyond judicial forgiveness all the way to adoption. In other words, we're not merely forgiven, we're also made family. And if you consider the context of adoption in the Greco-Roman world at the time that this was written, the reality of our adoption is even better because it was a little bit different than how adoption works today. 
So back in those times, when someone was adopted, it wasn't like this cute, cuddly baby that was just born looking for a home. It was normally uh, an adoption of a young adult male who had exhibited good character. And the whole reason they're being adopted is that they would become heirs and maintain the family name of the childless rich. So you'd have this rich couple, they uh, were you know, trying to have children, they were unable, and they're looking around going, if we don't have an heir, then our family name and this inheritance essentially ends here. And so what they would do is they would look out in the community and go, where, where is there a, a, a young man of, 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 of great potential who has this great character who we could adopt into our family as a legitimate son to take on our name and to take this inheritance and continue it on. And this newly adopted son would lose all rights and debts of his old family and would gain the rights and inheritance of this new family. And a lot of times they would find people of good character who were coming from less than fortunate backgrounds. So you can imagine this son, this, this, this person who's doing everything they can to make a good name for themselves. They don't have a lot of means. And then this benefactor comes along and says, hey, I want to adopt you. All the debts that you might have, you're going to lose them. Any, any, any shame in, uh, that comes with your old family name, we're going to remove all of that. In the most binding legal way, the adopted son received a new father, a new family, and a new life. I want you to think about that for a moment. The childless elite would be looking for a young adult male of good character to adopt. They wouldn't just uh, give this gift to just anybody. Right? They had to have at least proved themselves because they wanted to maintain their family name. They wanted to look for someone who was deserving, someone who had proved themselves worthy to carry out the family name. And so into that culture of adoption, Paul says, this is what God has done. He has looked at us and all of our sin and all of our undeservedness People of poor character, unworthy to carry the family name. And he says, I want you to become my heir. I want you to carry the family name. And just like adopted sons and daughters in Greco-Roman times had their debts canceled, our debt was canceled. Our record of debt was nailed to the cross. And then we gain the status as legitimate sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges therein. A new family, a new father, a new life. Do you see, do you see how adoption goes beyond forgiveness? This is grace upon grace. God's love has extended beyond forgiveness into fellowship all the way to family. So just think about it for a minute. I'm willing, I, I'm guessing that many of you are willing to extend forgiveness further than you would extend fellowship and family. So here's what I mean. If someone wrongs you and you really understand uh, and appreciate the gospel and, and you've read the teachings of Christ that if you've been forgiven that you must also forgive, right? In other words, the forgiven must learn to forgive. And, and so you've let that permeate your heart and someone wrongs you, you're probably willing to go, I forgive you. See, it's one thing to forgive someone and it's another thing to extend fellowship. It's one thing to tell someone, I forgive you. It's another thing to say, come sit at my table. And an entirely different thing to say, why don't you come live with me? See, we're willing to, to give forgiveness out pretty freely. It's another thing to go, would I forgive someone? And then say, come live with me. Come be a part of my family. And see, that's exactly what God has done in adoption. Not only has he forgiven us, not only has he given us fellowship to sit at his table, he has said, come live with me. See, not only are you forgiven, but you are family. Friends, the gospel is not merely that God forgives us. And that is a sweet grace. And if that were the end of the story, it would be enough to praise him forever. But the gospel is that God makes us family. Is the beauty of adoption something only for elite Christians, those who prove themselves worthy of God's name? Nope. It's for all those who receive him. John chapter 1 verse 12. John writes this, but to all who did receive him, that's received Jesus, who believed in his name, guess what? He gave the right to become children of God. 
You don't have to prove it. You don't have to earn it. If you believe in him, he says, you are a son or daughter of God. Why does God love us? Well, it's because he loves us. 1 John 3, 1. John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Paul, John is asking, what kind of love? What category of love? What is the depth of God's love? And he says, it's the kind of love that goes beyond forgiveness all the way to family. See what kind of love the Father has? That we should be called children of God and not just called. He says, so we are. It's who we are. Now just consider the implication of your adoption as it relates to this pursuit of holiness and the discipline of the Lord. See, if we, if we just stop to think about adoption, it has so many implications. As God's children, we are now under his fatherly care and discipline. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Listen to this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do you know every good father on this earth disciplines his children? Not because he doesn't love them, but precisely because he does love them and desires them to grow in character and in wisdom. In the same way as God's beloved and adopted children, God the Father disciplines us. Not because he doesn't love us, but precisely because he does love us. And that very discipline is evidence as our status as legitimate children of God. So if you sense the Lord's discipline in your life, if when you sin, the Lord will not let you go, but presses it on you, makes, it, makes you feel the weight of it, compelling you to put it to death. Friends, that is the Lord disciplining his legitimate sons and daughter. That conviction of sin, that drive towards holiness, that's him saying, hey, you are my son. Hey, you are my daughter and I love you. I love you too much to let you stay here. I love you too much to let you ruin your life by giving in to fleeting and temporary uh, uh, sin. I don't think we have given the glory of our adoption much thought. I don't think we sit and think about it. I don't think we've pondered it. My question is, have you spent time in this glorious truth? J.I. Packer called it the crown of our blessing. That we are sons and daughters of God. Have you let it move from your brain into your heart. Elise Fitzpatrick says, our union with Christ may be summed up in these words. Because the Father has immeasurable love for the Son, He has immeasurable love for us. Remember, what does our union mean? What is true of Christ is now true of you. So the love that the Father loves the Son, which is immeasurable. That's the love He has for us. He has immeasurable love for us because we are in the Son, part of him, one with him, married to him, part of the family. He looks at us though we always were. And this is great. Listen to this. When the father looks at us, he doesn't scratch his head and wonder, how'd she get in here? What's he doing here? No, he says, this is my beloved daughter, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. All because we are in union with the son he loves. Brother and sister, no one sneaks into God's family. No one. There's no clerical errors. God doesn't look at you and wonder, how'd you get in here? No, God looks at you and says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's why we don't have a spirit of slavery and fear to, to hide from God. But that spirit of adoption that is given to us to say, we are legitimate children. God really is my father. 
That, that, is, that, 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 that is the Spirit's ministry to say, God is your Father, you are His child. So there's to be a nearness, a tenderness, a relational connection to Him as His beloved children. I really believe that the reason why we don't experience enough or, or large amounts of spiritual renewal is because we have not pondered long and hard our adoption as his children. Spiritual renewal begins with you believing and living out the reality that your forgiveness did not terminate in a transaction of canceled debt, but continued all the way to family into adoption. I can't say it enough. If you are in Christ, you are dearly loved, immensely loved. You are forever accepted into God's family. How would your life look different if you took that seriously? Not as some abstract theological truth, but as a real thing that changed your everyday life. Would that change how you pursued holiness? Would that change how you put things to death in your life, knowing that your father is, is lovingly caring for you to say, don't touch that, it'll burn you. Don't do that, it will kill you. Right? And said, put this on. Compassion, kindness, meekness. Would that give confidence that God loves you? Would that stop the whole frenetic anxiousness of does he love me, does he not? Does he love me, does he not? You are his beloved son or daughter. There is no question in his mind of his love for you. And therefore, there should be no question in your mind either. We can be confident of our salvation. God's children are led by his spirit. And his love goes beyond forgiveness to adoption. Let's look at a third point here very quickly. That God continuously reminds us that we are his children. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Back in verse 15, Paul said that the Spirit testifies to our spirits that he is our Abba, Father. That word Abba means Father. It's just translated right there for you. Abba is Aramaic. And because Paul's writing to people who may not know in Aramaic, he says Abba means Father. It's the way children would address their father. It's a way that they, uh, as those children grew up, they would address their father. This is a word that is not cold or distant, like we might say, like father. It's not like that. This is a tender word. It's, it's something only a legitimate son or daughter could call their father. So like no one else gets to walk into their home and call this man father unless they're legitimately a son or daughter. It, re- it represents a, a closeness and affection, a sense of trust and intimacy. And you would not call anyone else except your own father, Abba. You wouldn't just throw that word around. It, it, this was reserved for legitimate sons and daughters, to speak to their father. It, it certainly was uh, close and tender. And because we've been adopted into God's family, because we're loved, because we've been brought near, we can call the God of the universe who made all things, who is omnipotent, omniscient, right? We can call him our father. And not only can we call him that, we can call out to him. We're encouraged Paul says to cry out to him. That word for crying out is a very expressive term. We can cry out to him not just in worship gatherings and prayer gatherings, but anytime, anywhere, for any reason. In the same way that a, 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 my children feel no, nothing holding them back for crying out to me for any and all reasons at any time of the night. It's the same way that we can cry out to God. And if that weren't enough, we're told in verse 16 that the Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we really are the children of God. Now, I cannot express to you how profound this is. I don't know of any other religion that teaches this truth. Most religions go, listen, it's on you to work, to, to, to be assured. Like by your performance, you can be assured of your salvation. This is the only religion I know that says the very God himself has indwelt you for one of the primary purposes just to remind you that you're loved, you're accepted, you are forgiven, you are mine. We are prone to doubting, prone to disbelief, prone to questioning, but the spirit is at work in us 
in ways that go beyond comprehension. If you're asking, well, how does he do that? My answer is, I have no idea. I don't know. I just know the Bible says that he testifies and witnesses to convince us that we are beloved children of God. Think about how helpful this is. After you've sinned in a grievous, maybe an embarrassing way that might cause you to hide in fear, to be embarrassed by shame, you have the inner work and ministry of the Spirit saying, hey, God loves you. God loves you. You are his. He forgives you. You're still beloved to him. Maybe you've spent days, months, weeks, maybe years walking away from him, living your life apart from him. And that moment you repent and turn, you're going to need that inner voice of the Spirit reminding you, welcome home. I love you. God forgives you. And that you're still beloved to him. Here one more time, Pastor Ray Ortland. He says, when I walk under the warmth of the Georgia sun, I do not ask, by what line of reasoning may I conclude that this sunlight is falling on me? I just know it is. It's too obvious to doubt. Indeed, it is that sunlight that enables me to see everything else. And when the Holy Spirit breathes assurances to your spirit that you are God's child, his testimony carries a certainty that needs no validation. That witness itself becomes a support and encouragement by which everything hopeful in your life can spring forth. Seven Mile, one of the reasons your pastors wanted to spend 13 weeks in one chapter in Romans 8 is because we just wanted to soak in gospel truth. We wanted to come out of this series just drenched with the gospel. And our hope is that you would come out of the series with confident assurance of God's forgiveness and of your adoption as sons and daughters into God's family. One of our main goals is just simply this, that you would know that you are loved by God. That one of your names is beloved. You are beloved. God will lead you. If you're one of his children, God will lead you by his spirit. His love goes beyond forgiveness all the way to family. And God will continuously, by the power of his spirit, remind you that you are a son or daughter of God. Let's pray.